with adrenaline pumping through my veins. I stood up. I looked my potential enemy in the eye. Time came to a crawl, feeling as if I was invincible. The pharmacy of my body pumping so much adrenaline that my hands were shaking. My pupils dilated. The hair stood up on my entire body. And then I took the first right hook to the face. Immediately followed a second right hook to the face. My cheeks began to ripple. It didn't hurt so much as it did to wake me up. Immediately, I threw my hands onto my attacker and pushed as hard as I could, causing him to fall onto his ass. Awestruck and ready to fight, I began to approach. Immediately following, the teacher walks in, reprimands us both, threatens to crash our skulls into each other, and we sit down. Fuming, shaking, and with a hint of panic, we waited out the entire class, which was oceanography completely unaware of what's going on in the classroom. I imagine all we can think about was what we were going to do to each other after the class ended. It felt like an eternity and a lifetime in 40 minutes. But when the class ended, I approached with my hand out and we shook. We overcame each other's differences and we forgave one another. The reason why I bring this up is because I didn't stand up for myself. I stood up for someone who was much smaller than me, an underclassman, who was being picked on by the person that I so eloquently took two punches to the face from. I had been picked on for most of my life, and I was fortunate enough to have my sister by my side, friends, and in this instance, teachers, to make sure that nothing too devastating happened to me. But what I saw in this younger underclassman was myself, and I had enough of it. And so I decided to be the protector. The things that I learned from that were twofold. The first was that I needed to create space and prepare myself for anything. And the second was that action nine times out of ten is necessary. And that making a decision quickly can save someone's life. The reason why I bring that up today is because I have a story that was told to me from my grandmother a few months before she passed. It's a story that takes place in the late 70s in Nicaragua, where half of my family's from. She told me this story with a little bit of humor and jest but I feel like it was one of the more terrifying moments in her life, as well as my grandfather and my mother and her siblings. I want to make sure that I keep the tone as serious as possible while still maybe providing a little education on something that maybe none of you understand as as much as I didn't before looking this up. I also want to thank you for having patience with me because I'm going with a new style and a new software and that this project means a whole lot to me, and when you listen, it becomes that much more special. And so with that, I want to go ahead and get into episode two, Fight or Flight.
Welcome, everyone, to Andre Tell Me More. Naturally, you're listening to me, Andre, and I preceded this introduction with a story. I want to bring you into what the tone of the episode's going to be like, as well as maybe provide some entertainment value or a shed into my life that's based on whatever subject matter's going on. Moving forward, I think this is kind of the template that I want to go with. And I really appreciate you tuning in today. It's been a long month, and I've been practicing and writing and viewing my software as a new piece of material that I need to master. Before diving in even further into the story that I had mentioned, which was really difficult to put into words, <laughs> I I want to thank you for, again, giving me your ears for the next 20 or so minutes. Remember, this is a podcast about all of us and stories that we've told, shared, heard, and that I want to hear your feedback and I want to hear your pitches and your stories. Shoot me an email over at andretellmemore at yahoo.com. If you have my number, give me a text or a call. I probably miss you. This show is going to be about you guys as well as me. I want to make every attempt at making this as vibrant, inclusive, and diverse as possible. And I believe that you can help me do that. I've had a lot of help with this episode. And I've even joined a writer's group that I'm going to be sharing this with. And hopefully that'll help me get better and more creative with the way that I phrase some of these stories. I am by no means a writer, but I do love sharing and talking ears off, as most of you know. I've had a lot of ideas, and I really want to hear yours as well as your stories. So thank you again, and let's just dive right into it. Fight or flight. Have you ever felt that maybe the Democratic Party or the Republican Party could take up arms against one another and forcefully remove their seats from our Congress or Senate? Hell, even the Green Party forming a militia and storming Capitol Hill? Well, something like that does happen, and it did happen in the 1970s in Nicaragua. See, the thing was, there was a government in place called the Somoza government, and while mostly moderate, there was economic troubles based on all sorts of different commodities being coming cheaper and really throttling and bottlenecking the income sources from exports. Well, there was a group of individuals known as the Sandinistas that decided to take up arms against the Somoza government. While mostly popular, they were also rebels. They were young, they were violent, and they were communist. And so they didn't have a really good eye from the rest of the world except maybe Cuba and Russia. But the thing that they did was that they took over capital cities by force, conscripting young men to fight for the cause, brainwashing others to do the same. This militia aimed to overthrow the Somoza government and take control. And in order to execute this plan, either by volunteer or by force, the Sandinistas stormed cities like Manawa, the capital of Nicaragua, and killing government officials and politicians eventually in 1980, assassinating the president of the Somoza party. 
The real upturn for this was in 1978. The Sandinistas had taken over Manawa, which was about 50 kilometers away from my mother's hometown, and Rodolfo and Zalita, my grandparents, were at risk. You see, Rodolfo was on the government payroll, and not knowing what he did, he was, for the lack of a better term, a card-carrying member of the Somoza party, which, if you were found out to have that, was a death sentence. And so I want to transport you to 1978 Nicaragua, where my mother and her parents, Rodolfo and Zelide, were hearing gunfire and packing up and ready to roll. To be a refugee in their own country. Let's take a trip back in time and see what it was like to run away. This is where our story begins. distance, Rodolfo and Zalita knew the time had come to leave Messiah. They had family in the more rural parts of Nicaragua in the north. Making plans with urgency, they were prepared to flee Messiah and become refugees in their own country. Manawa had just fallen, and Rodolfo knew it was time to get out of Dodge, because the potential for death was much higher for someone who was part of the Somoza government. Packing up what they could, they loaded the 1974 Fiat and got their children ready in the back seat, leaving behind their hometown, their friends, family, and jobs. It was uncertain they would ever be able to return to Messiah. They spent almost two hours on the road, and they were getting close. Rodolfo asked his wife how many more kilometers. They were in for a long night, growing tired and the kids restless. The family felt that the passage from Messiah to where they were headed wasn't the most interesting, occasionally seeing cows and cotton and passing a few mountains. The calm seemed very juxtaposed and out of place, considering that most of Nicaragua has been in turmoil for the last decade. This had been a far cry from the bullets riddling the sides of their homes and in the streets. Slow down, cried Zalive. Look up ahead. Two trucks fitted with machine guns toting the initials FSLN, which is the abbreviated form for Sandinista, were blocking the two-lane highway, and four armed men were flagging down the family. These militiamen couldn't have been any older than teenagers, except for one who was most likely the leader. You see, at this time during the revolution, the Sandinistas were sussing out any Somoza government officials or party members or even people who were employed, and they were having them killed. Rodolfo was a card-carrying member, and he did have a gun. And knowing that his ID was still in the car, needless to say that there was a panic. If those men found out that Rodolfo and his family were involved with the government that was currently being overthrown, surely they wouldn't make it out alive. But if they were to try and outrun, there most certainly wouldn't be any chance. They brought the car to a halt, and one of the nearly adolescent gunmen approached the car door. The man orders Rodolfo out of the car and forces him onto the ground. 
Al piso ahora. Manos arriba. There's, there's no need to do this, Rodolfo pleaded. My family and I are just going to visit our cousin's farm for the week. With guns pointed to his head, it was clear these men were looking for someone and seemingly unswayed by Rodolfo's begging. They continued their questioning. ¿Ustedes vienen con armas putos? Sí, sí, I have a pistol for protection, and it's in the glove box. What Rodolfo failed to mention is that his government papers were in there as well, which, if found, would be his payment for the bullet they would eventually use to execute him. If they found the papers. The Sandinista rebel continued his questioning, each question more demanding and degrading than the last. It was becoming more apparent that Rodolfo was not going to make it to the farm. Zelida and the children were left alone for the duration of the questioning, and to the rebels, they weren't any interest. What could this woman and her children possibly do? The questions continued. Bueno, pendejo, dame tus papeles. Look, I only have my driver's license. Take it from my wallet. The rebel appeared to not believe Rodolfo, and grew a look of disgust. He tossed Rodolfo's wallet and began opening all the doors to the fiat, hoping to find what they wanted. And what they wanted was the government papers and an excuse to end the lives of my family. One after another, the family exited the vehicle, all lined up on their knees. But they didn't waver or panic. The rebels began searching the vehicle, and they tore through everything. The center console, fuse box, the front hood, the trunk, and eventually the glove box. They did find the pistol Rodolfo owned, but no papers. After digging a few minutes more, the older, assumed leader of the detail barked orders at the young rebel. ¿Qué estás haciendo? Déjalos ir. Ellos no son los que estamos buscando. And just like that, he had ordered his men to leave the family alone and let them go. They weren't what they were looking for. After getting back into the car and driving past the roadblock, Rodolfo looked to Zelida. She didn't say anything, but with a glint in her eye, she gave a flirtatious and devious smile. Confused, Rodolfo asked her what was up. Zelida opened her mouth. She revealed a sopping mess of papers. Through quick thinking, she put the government papers in her mouth to hide it from the Sandinistas and to protect her family. Turns out, being the trickster of the family had paid off, and most likely the reason why I'm actually here today. That's going to do it for episode two, everyone. Thank you for giving it a listen. It's been one hell of a month for me practicing my writing skills and trying a new approach for my storytelling. Uh, I've put in a whole lot of legwork, and I'm really hoping that I can evolve this podcast to another level. And remember, it's a storytelling podcast, and I'm not always that interesting. There's not as much to me than you think, and... I really rely on hearing stories from others so we can get something uh, truthful and fun and exciting on paper and eventually on recording. This podcast actually means a lot to me. And now that I've got the second episode out, I'm going to try and make the frequency of release a little bit faster. I'm a little bit more familiar with the software. And of course, I'm getting a lot more feedback and a lot more pitches. I've got people interested wanting to be on the podcast, and I have people interested to send me their stories. Again, I have an email open. It's andretellmemore at yahoo.com. Shoot me an email with your pitches next week or the next episode, depending on how quickly I can get this out. We're going to be focusing on getting faded. That's the, that's the theme of the episode. 
So I want your stories, whether they're drug-related, alcohol-related. I essentially want to do this every week, and I hope that I can get that release schedule on. It's a little bit more difficult not being as popular, but I do want to put in the legwork to make a more exciting experience for my listeners. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and there's still so much more to tell, and we're going to work on that on the next one when Andre tells you more about being faded. Music was provided today by Blank Kit, Jazzar, that's J-A-H-Z-Z-A-R, and Kevin MacLeod. Also, voice acting done by David, a good friend of mine. I wanted to give him a special shout-out. Till next time.